Hello, my friend. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. We are glad you're here. Hey, on today's episode, we feature Paul's interview with author Rick Coleman. Rick Coleman is recognized as a leading authority on Fats Domino. He wrote the definitive biography of rock and roll legend Fats Domino entitled Blue Monday, Fats Domino and the Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. In this interview, Paul talks with Rick Coleman about the fascinating Fats Domino. Hey, real quick, you know, the Paul Leslie Hour depends on you, the listener. You can help us, if you would, by going to thepaulleslie.com slash support and pull that lever. It's all self-explanatory, and we thank you in advance. Hey, it's time to start the interview now, and a good question for you is, what's your favorite Fats Domino song, hmm? Now we're going to take you to our interview with Mr. Rick Coleman, where he's going to be talking about the one and only Fats Domino and his book, Blue Monday, Fats Domino and the Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest is Rick Coleman, and he is the author of the book, Blue Monday, Fats Domino and the Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. Thanks for taking a moment to talk with us. Thank you. Who is Rick Coleman? Well, I've been uh, writing about New Orleans rhythm and blues for about almost 30 years now. I'm best known for writing the book on Fats Domino, which came out a few years ago. It's called Blue Monday, Fats Domino, and the Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. And where were you born? I was actually born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, because my parents were missionaries to Haiti in 1957 when I was born. They had been living in Louisiana, my mother's more or less from here originally. consider myself a Louisiana man. Well, Rick, tell us, what kind of music did you listen to early on? grew up in the 60s and 70s and was a big fan of rock and roll and the popular groups, the Beatles and Beach Boys and all the rock and roll groups. And I still loved, you know a lot of my favorite music. And uh, eventually, as I graduated from college, actually, as when I really realized the contributions that New Orleans had made to rock and roll, and I'd always been heavy into rock and roll history, so I decided I need to contribute to writing about New Orleans rhythm and blues, the rock and roll roots of New Orleans, so uh, that's how I started writing in the early 80s about New Orleans rhythm and blues. I actually started doing uh, radio documentaries at WWOZ Radio. And that graduated into writing for local magazines and then national magazines. A lot of album notes, not liner notes, and then the book. So why write a book about Fats Domino? Why not? <laughs> he was actually the most popular rock and roll rock and roller of the 50s after Elvis Presley. And people have forgotten that, but it's absolutely true. Unfortunately, him, like a lot of uh, rhythm blues artists from the 50s and 40s especially, have been largely forgotten. It, it, part of it was because a lot of the rock and roll histories were written in the first written in the late 60s and early 70s. And at that time, there was a, obviously it was a big hard rock and psychedelic rock type thing that was popular. And people were just not into old rhythm blues artists that weren't hardcore blues. So a lot of people were forgotten 
largely from that era. Fats did have some comeback during that era, but he just seemed too happy and too innocent, perhaps, for that era to really take him seriously. Add that to the fact that he has never done a lot of interviews, and uh, there hasn't really been much research on him. So that's why it took me 20 years, actually, to write the book over, off and on. Over the course of 20 years, I wrote the book. Can you take us back to the first time you met Fats Domino? Yes, it was in August 1985. I actually lived above New Orleans, and there was a seafood festival going on. And uh, I had written an article about this, the um, 30th anniversary of rock and roll, which at that time they were uh, rock and roll was primarily dated from Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. You know, Rock Around the Clock was certainly a landmark, and New Orleans had been contributing to the birth of rock and roll since the late 40s, even back as far as 1947, when Roy Brown first did rock, uh, Good Rock and a Night in New Orleans, the song that popularized the word rock. And, of course, Fats Domino was a major part of that because he had recorded The Fat Man in late 1949 and several other major hits uh, stringing up to Ain't That a Shame, which was a, a landmark uh, in some ways equal to Rock Around the Clock because he was the first black artist to make the top ten with a rockin' song. And he actually paved the way for Chuck Berry, who far, follows slow, shortly afterward with Maybelline, and Chuck, uh, Little Richard, who uh, followed shortly after that with Tutti Fruity into the pop charts. All of those actually predated Elvis's a debut in the pop charts with Heartbreak Hotel in early 1956. That led up to me meeting Fats at the Seafood Festival in 1955 because he liked the article that I'd written. Our special guest is Rick Coleman, the author of Blue Monday, Fats Domino, and the Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. I wanted to touch on what you just mentioned, the song Fat Man, which, as you said, was recorded back in 1949. Explain to the listeners why you and so many other R&B scholars think that that's a significant recording. The thing was that rhythm and blues in the in the uh, late 40s, even in New Orleans, was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, there was, uh, uh, you know, there was very different types of blues. One strain of blues was risque. Another strain was very popish, uh, kind of like a light cocktail blues. And both those styles were popular in New Orleans. But what the Fat Man really contributed to rhythm and blues was that it it uh, had a driving rhythm to it, almost a train-like locomotive sound that people had really rarely ever heard anything like that before. And it combined with Fats Domino's just ex- utter exuberance in his vocal and his uh, words that he sang Telling him, they call they call me the fat man because I weigh 200 pounds. All those women love me because I know my way around. And then after that, he actually did a scat part where he went wah 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 wah. People were just excited by that sound. It was it was a thrilling kind of thing. And truthfully, what it was was that the two styles I mentioned earlier of rhythm and blues were for older audiences who had been sitting around in bars. And you know, drinking alcohol, and Fats Domino was like a new young generation coming in. He was 21 years old, and he just had this utter enthusiasm for the music, and it was dance music for a younger audience, and that kind of set the trend for what came with rock and roll a few years later. You've known Fats Domino for a long time. 
What is he really like? Oh, Fats is a, is is a, uh, is a wonderful guy. He's a really sweet man, but he's also a very private man. Doesn't go out too much. He uh, doesn't, like I say, do interviews. He uh, he just uh, he's kind of a simple man in a lot of ways. But he's he's once you get to know him, he's just a, he's a delightful person. He um, he just has certain things that he likes to do, like cooking and playing his music and and being with his family and friends and uh you know he just doesn't doesn't like to do a whole lot of other things <laughs> it's really almost amazing that he really became a popular figure because he was never into going out and he was never a uh, had any great ego to satisfy it's just he liked to perform so much and he liked to please people and uh you know that was a great thing because he's pleased millions and millions of people over over 60 years now. One of the things that your book, Blue Monday, points out so well is Fats Domino's influence on so many of the other popular recording artists. I was amazed by the quote from Bob Marley, for instance, but there's so many artists that have been influenced by Fats Domino. So with that, I have to ask you, do you believe that Fats Domino is the true king of rock and roll? Well, that that was something that uh, uh, Elvis said when they, they were at the Elvis's comeback concert in Las Vegas in uh, July 1969 that uh, all the reporters were paying attention to him, but the, uh, Elvis had become good friends with Fats and who happened to be at the press conference. And he said, well, look at Fats over there. He's the, he's the real king of rock and roll. And uh, I don't know if he was slightly joking or not, but the, but the truth is that Elvis... Uh, was was paying tribute to Fats because he knew that Fats had been around a long time before Elvis had he he recorded you know, the, the Fat Man nearly five years before Elvis's first record and uh, he had definitely been the dominant figure of the of the early fifties and as I said before he paved the way with Ain't That a Shame and many other hits there's certainly a case to be made that Fats put the big beat into rock and roll, him and Dave Bartholomew, his co-writer and band leader, producer, that, that they put the big beat into rhythm and blues, which put it into rock and roll, and that's a, pretty much the most significant element about the creation of rock and roll is the big beat, because that's what makes the kids dance, okay? And if you ever watch those old uh, American bandstands, you always hear them say, rated, rating a record, they said, it's got a good beat and you can dance to it. <laughs> and that was very significant because uh, white popular music, for the most part, up until that time, had not had a, a major big beat. It really came out of black culture and specifically out of New Orleans, which has a history of of uh, uh, heavy rhythms, you know, dating back to Congo Square even, which was the first place that slaves were allowed to keep their their drums in the new world the only place really and uh so it's a very long and significant history in new orleans of that rhythm our special guest is rick coleman the author of blue monday fats domino and the lost dawn of rock and roll do you have a favorite memory of fats domino i was writing the book i was uh, really just uh hanging out with fats and we were fairly close at the time and uh you know we're still we still talk to him he's still a, a, a sweet man but then i was actually able to go with him to his concerts in his limousine occasionally 
one, this particular time was at a Mardi Gras concert. I think it was 1992. He uh, had was taking two cars, and I don't remember if I, I, I was, I think I was in the second car, and Fats was in, a, in the front car. Then he uh, was playing a concert at the Superdome in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, at, and it was called uh, uh, one of these big parade crews, and it was called Endymion uh, Liberation. He was actually warming up for the Beach Boys that night. And so it was a, you know, that was an incredible concert, and uh, he actually got stopped, first of all, at the... Uh, security checkpoint because he didn't have the proper security and amazingly fats didn't didn't get mad at all he actually we all got out of the cars and waited for a half hour to get the proper security clearances <laughs> and uh that was kind of amazing in itself because you think of superstars but anyway that he went inside and we uh we actually were there uh you know an hour or so before the concert and uh he didn't really know uh, too much about the Beach Boys. As a matter of fact, <laughs> he, 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 he asked me if they were black or white, <laughs> which has got to be pretty funny. Pretty funny to anybody who hears that. But uh, the Beach Boys uh, uh, really had, amazingly, had never seen Fats perform over the years. And they actually were outside his dressing room, salaming, bowing down to his dressing room door, <laughs> like, like, I am not worthy. And so it was an amazing night. I got to talk to a couple of them, Alan Jardine specifically. He said, you know, you don't, you don't know what he meant to us, man. So it was quite an amazing concert. I thought uh, the Beach, you know, I love the Beach Boys, but I think Fats actually stole the show from them. Well, I wanted to touch a little bit on a gentleman who passed away recently, Bobby Charles. Did you know Bobby? I knew him a little bit. I interviewed him and got a good interview with him. Uh, I, can, I certainly uh, know him and Fats were great friends. There's a little story behind him and Fats, and it goes back to when Bobby wrote See You Later, Alligator, and he was a teenager out in Cajun country out in Louisiana. He had written this song based upon just some Cajun saying, which had also been used in jazz and various things, See You Later, Alligator. The girl had told him, after a while, Crocodile, and that's how he said, wow, I'm going to write a song. So anyway, he took that to... A concert where Fats Fats was pretty much his idol at the time, as as with a lot of Louisiana uh, youngsters, teenagers, uh, you know, and especially out in Cajun country, they just ate him up. Uh, He was actually said, but he said he was like only one or two or three black uh, white guys at a black concert in his hometown, Abbeville. That's what it is. And he walked up to Fats afterwards and asked him, how would you like to do this song? And Fats kind of laughed at it. He said, I never thought about doing a song about an alligator. That's not what he said, but that's what he was thinking. And so, but he said he had already recorded some stuff, so he didn't. So he politely turned him down. But then uh, Bobby, of course, recorded it. And then Bill Haley had a huge, huge hit with it. But that was the beginning of him and Fats kind of getting to know each other. And But years later... He recorded for Dave Bartholomew and Imperial, and uh, he wrote some more songs for Fats. And specifically, when he was in Lafayette, he met Fats backstage. Fats told him that he had recorded a song before I Grow Too Old, which is a. and said, Well, man, I wish I could hear it. And says, Well, I, but I can't get to New Orleans. I, if I had to go to New Orleans, I had to walk. <laughs> So he uh, so he thought of that and said, "Wow, that, that's going to be a song too." So he wrote that song just uh, that later that night, and so of course that was became a classic song for New, for Fats walking to New Orleans, and really it kind of became the theme song after Katrina. It was used a lot talking about New Orleans. 
And so, but Fats and Bobby have remained close friends over many years. As a matter of fact, Bobby passed away just in uh, January, I think, and uh, he had just finished recording a song, which he was so happy to record for Fats, his longtime friend. It was called, it's on his new album, his final album, called Happy Birthday, Fats Domino. Just from your own personal tastes, and your memories of over the years with Fats Domino, do you have a favorite song, or could you pick a favorite Fats Domino song? I, I think so. I, I, I guess I would go with I'm Ready, because it just has such a great rhythmic drive, and the Fats just is, is, is you know, I love a hard hard rocking sound, and that, that, that just goes so fast and so heavy, and Fats is just rocking almost as hard as Little Richard in that one to me. It's just pounded song, and if you listen to it, there's actually no horns in that. It's quite an amazing thing, because they just... They actually performed that on a Dick Clark show one time and at that time in 59, and the horn players are just clapping their hands. So, I mean, it's just a driving song. I love that. And it's a rock and roll anthem, too, if you think about it. But uh, as far as, wow. But he's had so many, so many great hits, and the significance of them is just so great. I mean, Fat Man, Ain't That a Shame, Blueberry Hill, Walking to New Orleans, and uh, Blue Monday, which, of course, is the song I titled a book at, and that book over and uh that uh is all of them have very great significance in their own ways just from your own personal tastes and your memories of over the years with fats domino do you have a favorite song or could you pick a favorite fats domino song i i think so i i, I guess i would go with i'm ready because it just has such a great rhythmic drive and the fats just is, is, is you know i love a hard hard rocking sound and that 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 just goes so fast and so heavy and fast it's just rocking almost as hard as little richard in that one to me it's just pounded song and if you listen to it there's actually no horns in that it's quite an amazing thing because they just they actually performed that on a dick clark show one time and at that time in 59 and the horn players are just clapping their hands so i mean it's just a driving song i love that and it's a rock and roll anthem too if you think about it but he's had so many so many great hits and the significance of them is just so great. I mean, Fat Man, Ain't That a Shame, Blueberry Hill, Walking to New Orleans, and uh, Blue Monday, which, of course, is the song I titled a book at, and that book over, and uh, that is all of them have very great significance in their own ways. What is it you like about Fats Domino? Well, I love that he is just, Fats is such a, such a down-to-earth person. As I say, he doesn't really have any great ego. He, he he just loves music and he loves performing for people and making them happy. That that in itself is just you got to love that. That is such a beautiful thing that he was able to put his enthusiasm, this this almost childlike enthusiasm, into his music for nearly 60 years is an amazing thing. People just don't have that kind of drive and enthusiasm for music for the most part. He almost powered his way in, you know, through through rhythm and blues, and people thought, you know, that's not something that, <laughs> that most people wanted to do. They, he didn't care about if he was being too enthusiastic or that, he, you know, that people didn't weren't used to that kind of a hard driving sound. He just wanted to play it, and he wanted to entertain people, and people caught on, and they loved. It. That was just the kind of a youthful enthusiasm, just driving through his music, and that's just the way Fats is. He's just a sweet enthusiastic guy who just just loves living you know, living and enjoying life 
I think the song that a lot of people most associate with Fats Domino, one of them is probably Blueberry Hill. Tell us about that song. Blueberry Hill was uh, an old pop song, and uh, well, actually, it was first recorded by Gene Autry for uh, one of his singing cowboy movies, in, I think, 1940. And shortly after that, Glenn Miller had a big number one pop hit version of it with girls singing the song, if you can imagine that. And then probably the most significant version after that was Louis Armstrong's version in 1949. And Fats Domino had heard Louis Armstrong's version, and uh, he loved it, but he really never knew the whole song. So luckily his his uh, brother-in-law, Harrison Verrett, who had played in a lot of uh, New Orleans jazz bands as a guitarist and banjo player, knew the whole song. They were actually in Los Angeles at the time in the spring of 1956 when they were tried to record the song. The fact that they Fats didn't really know the whole thing contributed to the fact that they really were not able to get a whole take of the song. In other words, they would record the song, but they couldn't record it all the way through. They had to stop at various times. Dave Bartholomew was not too happy, actually, with the session because he knew that they had never completed a full take. He told Lou Chud, who was the owner of Imperial Records, Lou, I don't have nothing when they went to dinner that night. But uh, Lou Chud heard it, and he said, well, that sounds pretty good. I think we can put it on as a B-side, okay? So he had his engineer, who was uh, Bunny Robine, at Master Recorders Studio in uh, Los Angeles, edit it together from the different takes, and it came out all right, he thought. So he put it on the B-side of the song called Honey Child. And they actually released Honey Child, and we're, we're uh, promoting that. <laughs> this jockey said, wow. The song Blueberry Hill, and they said, that's, that's a great song. And so they actually had to flip it over and play Blueberry Hill. And, of course, it became the biggest record of Fats' career. I mean, it was just huge. Amazingly, Fats never had a number one pop hit, but uh, Blueberry Hill did reach number two. <laughs> it sold mil- uh, you know tens of millions of copies on its own and is in uh, the Grammy Hall of Fame and, and other other legendary song classics, but the, the, certainly the song that people know best of all, perhaps the one thing that's funny, kind of funny about it is actually the song was considered kind of risque. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. As you ever watched the series Happy Days, you know that that's one thing that Richie Cunningham, uh, Ron Howard used to say, I found my thrill whenever he was talking about girls, making out with girls. You know, I was reading this interview that Dave Bartholomew did a few years back where he said that, you know, we just talked about walking to New Orleans, but it's kind of interesting. There have been a number of Fats Domino songs with walk in the title. I'm walking. uh, Have you ever seen a dream walking? And Dave said that Fats thought that song titles with walk in the title were lucky. Had you ever heard that before? Well, I think he was saying that Fats thought they were lucky. And and obviously, you know, they were lucky for him because it, it was, as you said, I'm walking, and then it did, I'm walk, I want to walk you home, and then walk, walk into New Orleans. And that actually, those were three, I, I believe all three of those were number one R&B hits for him. So, yeah, he definitely was lucky with that title, uh, using the word walk in the title. And part of the thing, I think, you know, again, it goes back to the Fats had had a uh, had a rhythm in his songs, and a walking rhythm certainly fits "Walking to New Orleans" as it does fit "I Want to Walk You Home." But ironically, 
I'm walking is almost at a galloping beat if you listen to it. So it doesn't sound like he's running almost, you know. <laughs> That's kind of ironic. But uh, specifically, I'm walking certainly was one of Fat's biggest hits right after Blueberry Hill uh, and Blue Monday. That that has a uh, huge rhythm, com- uh, which was contributed to by the dr- the great drummer Earl Palmer, who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an instrumentalist. And uh, it's it's all really almost a uh, a uh, jazz brass band marching rhythm in there uh, that they would play on the snare drum. And it, if you listen to it, it starts out with a uh, a, a, a bass prelude. They, they in the in the brass band parades they would have a, a bass drummer and then a uh, go into the snare drum and. Uh, so if you listen to it, uh, he's playing both a bass part, which goes boom, 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 and then he goes into the the two beat, which is I'm walking, bump, 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 you know. So uh, so it's it's really a driving, driving rhythm, and it's not walking at all, but it sure was a huge, huge hit. And uh, of course, Ricky Nelson made it into his first hit just shortly thereafter. And uh, ironically, uh, you know, it's been recorded by a bunch of people. I think Hank Williams Jr. did it in the in the seventies, and uh, and then even Ella Fitzgerald, of all people, recorded it in the seventies. And it's actually become both a country and a jazz standard. <laughs> it's it's amazing, you know, how far so many of Fat's songs have carried him. Well, you know, I was also thinking it's interesting because, like we said, he he had the. Uh, the walking in a few titles, uh, in a, in a few of his song titles, but also blue. You know, my blue heaven, blueberry hill, blue Monday. It's just kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, that that that's another point. Of course, you know that relates back to uh, you know the blues. I would think uh, that he would that he would do a song with the word blue in it, but the thing is that you know very Fats did some blues. But uh, he always did kind of a, almost always had some kind of a happy turn to most of his blues. He never did the extremely broken down blues. And uh, ironically, the other other two songs you're talking about there are actually Ten Pan Alley songs. My Blue Heaven was a huge hit in 1927, and Blueberry Hill from 1940. And so. That that really expanded Fats' audience at that time because uh, that, that was actually intentional that he was recording some of those Tin Pan Alley songs, or in other words, the pop songs from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. That that really expanded his his uh, audience because adults really had no respect for rhythm and blues, and uh, the fact that he did such a beautiful exuberant version of these old songs which the the kids parents knew actually got the parents to buying these records so uh it was uh it was a uh, a huge breakout for fats my blue heaven was the first and then he did one, uh, when my dream boat comes home which was also a big hit another ten pan alley song and then he capped off that little trilogy with blueberry hill which of course was his biggest song of all time one of the other songs that he's most known for is Ain't That a Shame. Tell us a little bit about that one. Ain't That a Shame was a very, very simple song, as anyone who has ever listened to it knows. And i, I got to say that that's 
that's kind of the difference between Fat's songwriting and Dave's songwriting because uh, that's you know Dave's written certainly written a lot of simple songs, but that was kind of uh, Fat's trademark was to write very very simple songs, very simple lyrics. And if you listen to Dave's uh, songs, which are clearly his, like Blue Monday and I Hear You Knocking, and even One Night of Sin, uh, there's a more elaborate storyline in there where he's talking about what happened to him in the course of the song. But that's would just write simple nursery rhyme, nursery rhyme type things, and actually that's what Dave calls them to this day. It's like I'm walking, and ain't that a shame? Very, very simple one-line songs, or a whole lot of loving for that matter, which I think only has about 20-something words in it. And, you know, you made me cry when you said goodbye, ain't that a shame? So that's that's how Fats came up with that. He said because he saw a lady beat the baby in the street or something. And he said, ain't that a shame? He said, well, that could be a song. And they actually were out in Los Angeles in 1955, and they uh, put that together in this almost the same time that they recorded Blue Monday and another big hit of Fats called the the uh, All by Myself. The same within two weeks of each other, they recorded all three of those number one R&B hits. The the uh, the the Dave, Dave I don't know didn't know exactly what to do with it, but he I guess he emphasized the beat. Him Dave and Fats were were together on that mindset was to always have a heavy heavy rhythm and so that was really you know like i said the big beat that was driving his songs along so you know after fat said you made me cry he had the the drums and all the instruments come in and say bump 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 you know and that people had never heard a heavy heavy beat like that before on pop radio in the 1950s, so you got to imagine that people were just astounded like that. I mean, we, we don't, people don't really think about that, but ain't that a shame these days. But it was almost uh, a revolutionary-type sound, almost like we think of as Tutti Frutti by Little Richard. And of course, Fats never screamed like Little Richard, but he had a heavier beat in some ways than Little Richard, or at least just as heavy. Of course, Little Richard recorded all of his hits in New Orleans and used... That's a lot of the same musicians for that same heavy beat, and that's how he followed Fats into, you know, popularity. Ain't That a Shame was very significant because it crossed over in July 1955, the same month Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets became number one for over a month. And so they kind of were simultaneous shots of the, the revolution of rock and roll. You know, Bill Haley had the, the biggest record of the year there, and Fats had the first record by a black man with a heavy beat in the top ten, and that was that was really the opening shots of the rock and roll revolution. Just amazing stories. It really is amazing when you sit there and you look at all the different things that Fats Domino contributed to music. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the book, and then also I was reading that article you did, Seven Decades of Fats Domino, I knew about John Lennon, the fact that Ain't That a Shame was the first song that he had ever learned. But I didn't know that George Harrison, that the first song that he learned was a Fats Domino song as well. Yeah, let me talk about that. That is actually a, a kind of a forgotten Fats Domino song, but it was one of his biggest hits. It's a song that's called I'm in Love Again. Yes, it's me and I'm in love again. And uh, that that was a huge, huge hit. It's really bigger and chart-wise than Ain't That a Shame because it made 
uh, number three, where Ain't That a Shame had been number 10. And the significant thing was that in the late 1955, after Ain't That a Shame, Fats was not able to cross over. And again, as that was what Lou Chud of Imperial Records was so obsessed with, was crossing over from rhythm and blues charts to the pop charts. And you got to realize this is simultaneous as the integration of, of schools at the time, because in the integration ruling, Supreme Court ruling was in July of '54. Okay, so this is one year later that Fats crossed over with "Ain't That a Shame," which was, as I said, it was a very, very significant thing, which people have forgotten about. And uh, but he was not—he had two number one R&B hits after that, which were. Um, all by myself and poor me, and both those topped the R&B charts, but neither one of them even scratched the pop charts. And so in early 1956, Fats finally scratched the pop charts again with Bo Weevil, which was a song like uh, Ain't That a Shame, which was covered by a pop artist, which I didn't mention about Ain't That a Shame, which was very significant, and that's the reason why it really made the top ten was because Pat Boone had covered Ain't That a Shame and made it a number one pop hit, which if you ever heard Pat Boone's version, yeah, it's it not too awful. Good. But anyway, Teresa Teresa Brewer, who uh, had likewise covered Bo Weevil, took that to the top five, but Fat's version didn't do nearly as well. It only made, I believe, number 36. But still, that was his foot back into the door of uh, the, you know the pop charts ironically the subject matter bo weevil is about a an insect that gets into the white man's uh, <laughs> cotton crop and and uh, ruins it okay so it's, it's a little bit of irony there they got his foot back in the door with bo weevil cuz that, that black in the in the uh, late 1800s had actually kind of sniggered about the bo weevil it came kind of a, a folk hero for blacks because of, that was what was hurting the white man. So anyway, he got his foot back in the door with Bo Weevil, but when he really crashed the, the pop charts again was in the spring of 1956 with I'm in Love Again, which is just as a simple little loping beat. Uh, yes, it's me and I'm in love again, and, uh, and it has a nice little saxophone solo by the great Lee Allen, who played a, a few of Fats' solos, but most of Fats' solos on all of his hits were played by the great Herbert Hardesty, who is still around and has played with Fats for about 60 years, which is an amazing feat. And uh, anyway, but I'm in Love Again became a huge hit, number three, and uh, it uh, was heard by George Harrison uh, in Liverpool. First, He said it was the first rock and roll song he had ever heard. It just amazed him. And also, uh, you know, subsequently was recorded by Paul McCartney and a whole bunch of other uh, rock and roll greats. I got to do a little interview with Fats Domino, and he said that if he got songs that he liked, he would come out with another record. Do you see him coming out with another record at any time? Sadly, I, I don't think uh, I don't think Fats is going to be coming out with any more records unless it's something that's already been. Uh, recorded he he really is not performing anymore he is 82 years old he probably won't perform anymore because you know he you know he's he's an, he's an old man you know you're lucky if you can perform into your 70s let alone your 80s but he, from what i understand from talking to him he still plays piano 
and he's at home, and uh, we can just be thankful for all the great music that he's provided with us for 60 years, and it, it's a spectacular legacy. And I got to say that that you know I hope we we hope we could do a, a documentary on him. And uh, also, you got to look at the uh, great tribute that all these great rock and roll stars did to him a couple of years ago with the uh, uh, the two CD tribute to him. I mean, it's amazing the artists that are on there. Robert Plant and Tom Petty and, and Nora Jones and, you know, Dr. John and John Lennon even on there. And so they're all doing Fats Domino songs. So just look at that and, you, and you'll know how significant this man was. You know, Elvis, like I said, called him the king of rock and roll. Bob Marley said he started playing music with Fats Domino. And so, I mean, just if, when you look at the scope of his influence, I mean, it's just astounding. But, uh, you know, as far as him performing again, I, I don't think it's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I think that you know, we should, we should uh, you know, realize his legacy and pay tribute to him, you know, forever, really. My curiosity, I guess, on that album, the Going Home, the two-CD tribute to him, did you have a favorite cut from that album? Because I agree, I think that was just an incredible collection. I can't really pick out a favorite song. It, you know, I gotta admit I haven't really worn it out. I think it's pretty amazing that, uh, for instance, that uh, Robert Plant came down to New Orleans and actually recorded with a local band, and he actually did two songs on there. So I mean, Elton John contributed a song. It's just it's just amazing that that uh, so many of these artists just just instantaneously said that they would love to be a part of it, you know, and I don't think they were getting paid the big bucks for this. I think they really, really did it out of their heart. That's what I'm saying is that these artists, these rock and roll artists from the past 30 to 40 years really, you know, they appreciate it in some art fats in some ways more than, than the public at large does. I think, you know, fats is in some ways, you know, bigger than in Europe where he toured consistently every year from the 70s to the early to 1995 and uh so you know we in we in uh louisiana and certainly around the country need to appreciate our great musical legends more and uh certainly fats is one of the ones that has not been given the all of the credit that he deserves because he is one of the Central cornerstones of rock and roll, you know. You know, you could argue he you know, he may be the main cornerstone in some ways. That that's what, matter of fact, that's what Dave Bartholomew called him. He's the cornerstone. One final question before you go: What would you like to say to all the listeners out there? Well, I would love to say that you know, Fats Domino is an icon, and and people should honor him as you know as as much as any of the rock and rollers. Uh, as I was trying to say before, he was second only to Elvis uh, in in rock and roll in the in the early years, and so he's almost like an unsung hero because you know the, I, there's only been one book on him, and it took me 20 years to write. It, it just tells you so much about the whole story of America and and uh, the the rise of popular music and rhythm and blues and rock and roll specifically. And New Orleans' immense contribution to that, uh, that, um, you know, that is, that is, that is something that people have really not realized a lot. You know, they've realized it a little bit more after Katrina, maybe, and, and, uh, and, uh, New Orleans, the consciousness of New Orleans has increased, but, uh, 
Fats is, is, is still has never received his due, and uh, I'm going to throw in a plug for another icon who I think has never received his due is a Louis Jordan from the 1940s. He was the most popular black artist of the 1940s and has never had a book ever. Well, I'm taking that back. He has one book, but it's not that good. But he never had a documentary is what I meant to say. And likewise with Fats, I'm hopefully working on a documentary on Fats in the in the near future, and we hope to have that out sometime in the next year. You know, I hopefully that'll help his legacy because uh, people need to recognize recognize not only the legacy of uh, New Orleans but also of Fats Domino, who is you know definitely one of the great legends of rock and roll. I appreciate you talking to me and uh, giving me a chance to spread the word about Fats in New Orleans. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer. Written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano. The traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs> <laughs>